Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. There's a famous passage of Paul's in the book of Romans where he says that you shouldn't be conformed to this world. You should be transformed, and you should be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's famous because it's so clear, and it gives you that nice opposition. Here's the thing you shouldn't do. Here's the thing you should do. Uh, But before that, in in verse 1 of the book of Romans, chapter 12, uh, Paul says something that's a little less clear, that's almost a little bit cryptic. Before he talks about the renewing of your mind, these are the words he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So before all that renewing your mind stuff, he appeals to them and he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and this is your worship. What does that mean? It's like, great, let's, let's be living sacrifices, but, but how do you do that exactly? And if you were in the Old Testament and scratching your head, how do I offer a sacrifice? Guess what? The book of Leviticus is here to help. It's going to give you all of these instructions on how to offer sacrifices, what kinds of sacrifices, how to do it, how not to do it. Plenty of instruction on how to make a sacrifice. Here, not so much. What are we meant to take from commands like this, appeals like this? What is it we're meant to do when we're told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? That's the question I want to think about a little bit. I mean, one way to read it would be to ask ourselves, can we think of anyone who does this? Can we think of any examples of people who've offered their bodies as living sacrifices that we could learn from? And then, of course, Jesus is the answer. Jesus, of course, offered his body up. He offered himself up as a living sacrifice. So maybe what what Paul is saying to us in, in a fancy way is something like, Follow Jesus, follow Jesus' example. As Jesus offered himself up, you too should offer yourself up. Well, so far, so good. But as we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, when Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice, he was a particular kind of sacrifice. Right? He was a particular kind of sacrifice. Uh, the, the role that the sacrifice of Jesus plays is basically the role that the Day of Atonement sacrifice placed, uh, took place in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is doing for us at the cross is what was done sort of uh, symbolically on the Day of Atonement. This was a sacrifice made to atone for the sins of the people. That's the kind of sacrifice that Jesus made. That's what his body did. It atoned for the sins of the people. And as the author of Hebrews has told us, Jesus did that once and for all. There is now no need for further sacrifices for sin. In fact, to keep making those sacrifices is a little bit of an insult, even a denial of the sacrifice of Jesus. If after the cross I keep offering my own sacrifices for the atonement of sin, I mean, I'm basically denying the effectiveness of his sacrifice, right? So we could say, all right, we should offer ourselves the sacrifices the way Jesus did. 
But there's something about Jesus' sacrifice that we're not actually able to do. Like, none of us can do that. None of us can do that. So what is Paul getting at? Well, it turns out in the Old Testament, you made sacrifices for a lot of different reasons. It's true there was a sacrifice that was made for sin, but not all sacrifices had that as their motivation. There were other kinds of sacrifices that were made, including sacrifices for thanks. Uh, thank offerings, they were called. In the book of Leviticus chapter 7, you get instructions on how to offer a thank offering, an offer of thanksgiving. Something offered out of gratitude as opposed to offered to atone for sin. Psalmist says in Psalm 116, I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. So if Paul is asking us to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, there's a specific kind of sacrifice that we can offer up. Not the kind that Jesus made, but a different kind. A sacrifice of gratitude, of thanksgiving. We've already seen in that touchstone passage at the end of Hebrews 12 that over the last few weeks we've been kind of going back to and reconnecting with that we're meant to be worshiping God in reverence and awe out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. Out of a spirit of thanksgiving. So when you bring all of these things together, you can see that this sacrificial language, when it's applied to us, is basically talking about sacrificing ourselves out of a sense of thanksgiving or gratitude to God for what He has done. That's what it means to give your body as a living sacrifice, to give yourself up out of thanksgiving to God. That's all well and good, but still, the question is, how do you do that? How exactly do I make a thanksgiving offering of myself? How do I do it? We're so accustomed to being given how-to lists, tutorials, instructions. It's amazing. Now, anytime you're ignorant of something, there's already a video on YouTube that will walk you through the process. I was astonished a few years ago when Tim Murray was basically redoing his whole house himself by watching YouTube videos on how to lay tile or things like that and then doing it. And then inspired by his example, I actually watched a few videos and was able to change airbags and in my car without them exploding in my face. Now, the, the warning lights still came on and wouldn't go off, but still, I, I, they didn't explode, and that's something. There's so much guidance for us out there, so much instruction, anything you need to know, someone already has the answer and can give you an easy way of learning it, but not so much here. When it comes to asking ourselves how we can sacrifice ourselves, the answers are not so easy to find. But our passage gives them to us. In the passage we've read at the end of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews is signing off, he's not just throwing in some filler at the end. It's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm almost done with my letter. I'm in the last half of the last chapter. I should throw in some, some you know, hey, everybody, behave yourself language, and then I'll sign off. Not at all. The things that we're getting at the end of the book stand on everything that's gone before. But they, the, what's gone before gives us a context to understand that, that what we're hearing now is answering questions that are raised by this sacrificial language, this worship language. 
we're going to live all of life as worship, if we're going to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, how are we going to do that? We find answers here that are real. We find out how to sacrifice ourselves to an all-demanding God. And the first thing we see is this. You sacrifice yourself when you make our common confession of faith. Now listen to Hebrews 13. This is verse 15. Through Him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So we should continually make a sacrifice of praise to God. And that sacrifice of praise, what it consists of, is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So when you hear a verse like that, what may immediately come to mind is what we've just been doing, singing. Right? Uh, the fruit of our lips, we're going to praise Him with our songs, and we should continually do that, which is true, but it's not exactly what the author has in mind here. There's something else going on. The word that's translated here as acknowledge is a form of the Greek homologia. Homologia should be familiar to you. We've, we've uh, come across it before. It's the word that's translated earlier in the book of Hebrews as confession. Confession. Uh, literally, it is the same word. Right? So if you were a prophet and you received a word from God, you would have gotten a logia. And now, homologia, same word. The confession that is made is the same word spoken by all the people. Get the idea. So you make this confession, and the author of Hebrews says that you should hold fast to it. We've seen that before. Hold fast to the confession that you've made. Hold fast to it. You have professed your faith. You have gone out into the world, and you have proclaimed Christ to the world. Now hold fast to that confession. Now here, acknowledge His name. Confess His name. Confess His name. Of course, before you can hold on to something, you have to have it in the first place. And Paul talks about this. There's this idea of, of Paul's as he's writing to Timothy. He talks about the idea of making the good confession. He reminds Timothy as he's, he's basically equipping Timothy for ministry. He reminds him of the moment when he did something that Paul refers to as making the good confession before witnesses. He does this in 1 Timothy Chapter 6. So listen to these words. We'll read about five or six verses here. This is a passage that is um, often used as a charge. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he charges Timothy to be faithful, he says to him, remember the good confession that you made before many witnesses. Remember that. And when you remember that, think back to another confession that was made by Jesus Christ Himself in the presence of Pilate. When, when basically Jesus confesses Himself, confesses faith in Himself when He is tested. 
when he has tried. When he's given the option of essentially, as we would say a little anachronistically, rejecting himself so that he can get off of the charge, Jesus doesn't do that. He makes the good confession, Paul says. And Timothy, you should do the same thing. And you should do the same thing. Confess him with your lips. To make that confession, to speak that same word as all the believers who went before you, all the believers who are gathered together, to make that common confession is one of the ways we sacrifice ourselves. We sacrifice ourselves. We should be continually making the good confession before the world in the presence of many witnesses. When we are tested, we should with our lips confess Christ, our faith in Christ, our belief, our trust, our hope in Christ verbally, out loud, unavoidably before the world. This is a sacrifice of praise. The praise that we offer to him in this way is a sacrifice that we make. When you make a sacrifice, you give something up. Right? Sometimes you give up like your best goat, but sometimes you give up other things that matter a little bit more. When you make a sacrifice, you give something up. This sacrifice is no different. When you make this common confession with the people of God, you give things up. Obviously, you give up other saviors. You give up other hopes, other ways of salvation. But there's also some freedom that you give up as well. Freedom. One thing, you give up the freedom of anonymity. There's a certain kind of freedom that would be really nice to have, especially when you're surrounded by people who think badly of people who think what you think. And that's the freedom of anonymity. The freedom of being able to believe what I believe without having to say it, unless it's welcome to the hearers. That's a freedom you sacrifice when you praise him with your lips. There are people who believe in Jesus, right? Who want to be faithful to him, but they want to do it subtly. They don't want to make a big deal out of it because that can alienate others, right? That can make people think differently of me. It can cost me some relational capital. And as a result of that, we don't offer this sacrifice of praise because it feels too costly. But we're being told here to do it and to do it continually. Yeah, you're going to give something up and what you're going to give up is not without value. But sacrifice it for the sake of Christ who sacrificed so much for you. The other freedom that we give up when we make this common confession we yoke ourselves this way to the people of God, we give the freedom of, let's call it the freedom of other options. Um, this is the freedom you give up when you propose to the girl that you've been dating for 10 years. Right? Because as long as you're just dating, you have other options. Right? You're, you're reasonably committed to the path that you're traveling, but in case something better comes along, you've got a little bit of wiggle room. Right? You can, you can take another path if you need to. But the moment you make the commitment and you say the vows, you've lost some freedom. You've given that up. And that's not an inconsiderable thing. That's not a thing without value that you're giving up. You're making a sacrifice. But you're making it in order to gain something better. Same thing here. When we confess Christ, we lose 
certain wiggle rooms in our life. And we lose the idea that maybe there's a better commitment that we can make later on. Or maybe, you know, we could be like, like mostly in Christ's corner. We lose that. We lose, in other words, a kind of uh, autonomy. Autonomy. Um, the ability to make the choices for ourselves when we want to make them. Once we've made the commitment to Christ, once we've spoken the words, we've confessed our faith together with the people of God, we're linked to Him and to His people, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We sacrifice something real when we make that confession. But that's what He calls us to do. Give it up. Sacrifice it. Confess Christ as Lord for many witnesses. Give up those things because they're worth giving up for what you gain. This common confession, when we confess our faith before Him and before one another and before the world, that's praise. Like That's an act of worship that we're doing. We're bringing glory to God. When we lay what we have on the altar, and we say, this is yours, and I am yours. This, my body, I give to you as a living sacrifice. We're surrendering something of value to us, to him. Because we want to worship him. So you see, that's a sacrifice of praise. And it's more than just assent. It's more than just, I have studied the faith, and I have come to the conclusion that of all the options out there, the Christian one, it makes the most sense. It's more than just intellectual assent. It is worship. It is an act of worship. I mean, sometimes we think, you know, there's, there's a theology here and there's sort of practical application here. And the reality is all of it is worship. Like all theology should lead to doxology. Like none of it is given to us to edify us intellectually. All of it is given to us so that we might worship in spirit and in truth as deeply as we can. So you sacrifice yourself when you make our common confession of faith. But you also sacrifice yourself when you practice our common way of life. You sacrifice yourself when you practice our common way of life. Look at the next sentence. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As I said before, you don't want to look at, at like the moral teaching that you get at the end of an epistle like this and think, well, this is sort of the, the be on your best behavior stuff you throw in at the end, sort of like when you know the kids are going on vacation and you say, now, don't misbehave. That's not what this is. Right now, we're being told Specifically, in, in one sentence, it's kind of hard to get away from this, that, that doing good and sharing what you have are sacrifices and they are pleasing to God. In other words, these are acts of worship. When you do what is good, when you share what you have, you are worshiping God through other people made in His image. But why should we be good? Because we want to be seen as good people? No. We should be good because in doing good, we offer worship to God above. Our good works are worship to Him. There's a distinction you hear made between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy, uh, 
means right doctrine, correct doctrine. Right? So if you believe what is true, then you are orthodox. And the, the whole history of Christianity embodied in the, the creeds and confessions of the church are an attempt to identify like what is orthodox, what is it that we ought to believe. Right? Orthodoxy, really important. But there's this other thing called orthopraxy, and that's right practice, right action. And a lot of times these two things are put in um, tension with one another. And we do this ourselves. Some of us are drawn to the doctrine side. Some of us are drawn to the, the action side. And whatever side you're drawn to, you tend to think that's the one that's important. So if you're drawn to the doctrine side, orthodoxy is your thing, then you look at people who are doing good and sharing what they have, and you say, well, that's great, but I really wish they knew more doctrine. They really don't seem to know much doctrine. I was asking them just the other day to quote from the Shorter Catechism, and, and they paraphrased. <laughs> but if you're over here, and you're doing good, and you're sharing what you have, and you look over at that guy who's memorizing the Shorter Catechism, you're like, you know, I'm not sure he gets what this Christianity thing is all about. He thinks it's all about book learning, but it's actually about doing good. It's like doing stuff Jesus would do. That's what it's all about. And there's a sense in which they're both right and wrong at the same time. Because it's about both things. Orthodoxy is not just important, it's essential. Right? Because if you reject what's true, you reject the one who is the truth. You're not just ob objecting to principles. Right? Because the embodiment of those principles is, is Christ. On the other hand, Jesus isn't looking for followers who believe in him but don't do what he calls them to do. Right? You can't be orthodox, ultimately, and not do what is good and share what you have. These things go together. Now, what we do, we touched on this a little bit last time, what we tend to do is this. Wherever you're strong, you try to be stronger there to compensate for your weakness on the other side. So it's not unusual to see that the, the, the best Christians, in terms of, of doing the Christian life, sometimes are the ones who care the least about that dogma stuff. Right? Okay, believe what you want to believe, but let's do good and let's share what we have. And, and it's almost as if I want to be as strong as I can in those areas so I don't have to think about those. And vice versa. Vice versa. There are plenty of people over here who are applying themselves to knowledge because they feel bad that they're not doing the other stuff. But they can compensate for that by being over here. Right? When we live this way, we're, we're putting into opposition two things that are not meant to be in opposition. Right? Two parts of one life that we're all called to live. Yes, we should sacrifice ourselves by making our common confession of faith. But part of that common confession is a common embrace of a common way of life. And that way of life involves doing good, sharing what you have. And it's not an accident, I think, that we're called not just to holiness, not just to doing good, but also to generosity, to sharing. Because this reflects the character of God, the goodness of God. So we're called to do these things, to do good, to share what we have. We confess with our lips. We confess with our lives as well, with our action as well. And the rub is, of course, we also sacrifice. When you sacrifice, 
with your way of life, you embrace this common practice, you give up certain things that are nice to have. You give up your pleasures. The good ones and the bad ones. You give up your comforts, your security, your independence even. You surrender these things. Sometimes there's a way of life that seems right to us and we have to give it up because we're yoked to this common way of life of the church. And we're called to live this way together. Now, I want to see something here. This is pleasing to God. Like It's pleasing to God to make these sacrifices. They're not just sacrifices, but sacrifices which are worship of Him. Our common life, our common way of living proclaims His holiness and His goodness and His generosity as surely as saying those things out loud does. You can say that God is holy, that God is generous, that He is good, but you can also act those things out, embody those beliefs as well. And you should. This is helpful too, I think, in seeing that the author of Hebrews specifically links the idea of doing good to making a sacrifice pleasing to God, a a sacrifice of of praise. Because this helps take the fangs out of moralism. If you're wondering, if you've been called on to make a sacrifice of atonement for your sins, if God has called you to start being good and doing good things so that you might somehow atone for or cancel out all the bad that you've done, then a verse like this should show you that that's not the case. The kind of sacrifice that's being made is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, not of atonement. You can't make that sacrifice, remember? You can't do it. So if you think that you're being good so that God will approve of you, if you think that if you do good works, then God will love you, then you're thinking of your sacrifice the wrong way. In fact, you're thinking of it in a really dangerous way. Because you're thinking of the sacrifice you're making as an atoning one, not a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You might think to yourself, well, moralism's not such a bad thing because at least people who think that they need to earn God's favor live good lives. And that's true. right? There are uh, uh, Christian groups, there are pseudo-Christian groups who believe that they need to earn God's favor by living upright lives, and they live very upright lives. They make us look really bad. And so you might think, well, that's good. At least virtue abounds. But that virtue is being offered up as, as a, a sacrifice to atone for sins that only Christ can atone for. It's a kind of false or misdirected worship. So we do what we shouldn't do. It's not just that we're doing something bad. It's that we're offering a kind of worship that we shouldn't. We're glorifying things that we shouldn't. There's freedom in realizing that. I don't need to make that kind of sacrifice. But it can be a little sobering realizing I'm making that kind of sacrifice all the time without realizing it. And it should stop. Our good works are essential but not to earn the favor of God. Our good works are essential to express our gratitude and to worship Him. You sacrifice yourself when you practice our common way of life. And, thirdly, you sacrifice yourself when you enter into our common accountability. 
Author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Earlier in Hebrews 13, he's alluded to leaders, and that was a much uh, softer and cuddlier way of talking because he said you should follow their example, basically. And that's something we do. Right? If you want to be successful at something, one of the ways you can do that is to single out an example or a mentor and imitate the actions of that person. Right? You look at their life, you draw conclusions from it, and then you do things that would make you like them. That we can completely get on board with. It's different, though, to obey. Right? Obedience is asking a lot more than just model yourself on someone. To obey them implies that, that it won't be you deciding how to imitate them. There's accountability, in other words. There's accountability involved. Have you ever thought of it this way? And does it seem strange to you to be told like they, there could be other human beings, other people just like you, as sinful as you are, who are accountable, who will have to give an answer for your soul? That seems like a very foreign way of thinking to us. Because we imagine that we have these relationships and they're between us and God. Right? There's nothing in between that. There's no mediation there. I'm accountable directly to God. No one else has to answer for me. And I have to answer to no one else. But nobody told the author of Hebrews that that's the way it works. Sadly, he never got the memo. Because he thinks that, that your leaders should be obeyed because, uh, not because they're always right, but because... They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The, the kind of thing he's saying, it, it's sort of like when you say to your kids something like, obey me, not because I'm always right, or not because it's what I said, but obey me because if you don't, you're going to make my life so hard. Right? It's almost a pleading, right? an appeal. It's like obey your leaders because they have to give an account. He goes on and says, let them do it with joy, not with groaning. That would be no advantage to you. And you wish kids could learn that early. right? It takes a long time to realize it will be of no advantage to you not to make them do it with groaning. If this makes you a little uncomfortable or nervous, that's okay. It makes me a lot nervous and uncomfortable. If it's weird to you to have to think that uh, you might have to answer to me, it's a lot harder for me to think that I might have to answer for you. None of us are in a comfortable position here, whether we're talking about elders of the church, uh, whether we're talking about just, honestly, leaders in any context. Um, the idea of that kind of accountability makes us all uncomfortable, right? We're individualists. We want to answer for ourselves and no one else. We don't want anyone else to have to answer for us. And yet, when we make our common confession and we embrace this common way of life, we enter into a common accountability that's, that's ordered the way God's ordered it, not the way we would have done it. That's how it is. We want to say live and let live. It doesn't matter what other people believe. Let them believe what they believe. I'll believe what I believe. And here, there's a higher responsibility. Like, there's a care of souls that's involved. Like, the leaders of the church can't just let you believe whatever you want to believe. On some level, there's an accountability that's involved. It's why when you become a member of the church, one of the things that you do is, is 
submit to the uh, authority of the church, which is admittedly a borrowed authority, borrowed from Christ, and a pretty limited authority. In other words, it's an authority only insofar as it corresponds to what Christ has said. Right? So this isn't the situation you find somewhere where you've got to obey the leader, whatever the leader says is right. Like whatever the leader says is right only insofar as it echoes what Christ has said. It's a different way of thinking about these things. And yet, there it is. It would be great if we could all just do whatever we want, live however we want, believe whatever we want. That would be wonderful, but it wouldn't be community. This is the lost aspect of community for us. Like, we all long for community. We live in a time when we're aware that we lack community. Like, one of the things human beings now are striving for in, in, in all sorts of ways is to recapture a sense of community. But the part of community that we never get right, and the reason why the longing is never fulfilled, is we don't recognize that with that, that common community, there's a common identity and a common accountability. And that's part of what makes the community a community. The community of Christ is the same. The good news is, though, what the community of Christ cares for is not social norms. It's not whatever people value at the moment. It's not that we want to hold you accountable to whatever standards are important to your culture at this time. It's not about social norms. It's not about ideology or philosophy. It's not about politics. It's not about taste. It is about the Word of God. It is about the Word spoken by God where He reveals Himself in words that we're meant to hear, meant to listen to, meant to, yeah, submit to. And this is a huge sacrifice. It is a big sacrifice. We give up so much. I talked about giving up freedom, autonomy earlier. This is a huge loss of freedom. It's a huge loss of freedom. And I'm not going to say that, that we don't sacrifice something when we submit to this common authority, this common accountability of the church. We do lose something. We give it up. But we give it up to praise Him. We give it up to glorify Him. We give it up because we trust in Him. It is a big sacrifice. But it is worship. It is worship as much as anything else. Pray for us, he says. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And then skipping down a little bit, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. He was one of those prisoners we're meant to sympathize with. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. These are revealing words as, as the letter closes. They reveal a lot of things. First, and, and shockingly, they reveal that he thinks this was a short letter. <laughs> Bear with this word of exhortation for I've written to you briefly. You, you wonder, like, how long do they get when he really has something to say? But you also see something else in those words emerging, a pastoral concern, a pastoral heart, like a desire not just to, to like command, but to be with them, to, to, to rejoin that common communion that they have. 
And he asked that they would pray for him. I feel that same way. You know, I feel at the end of a book like this and, and thinking about the implications for us as, as a common people brought together in the shadow of the cross, a, a pastoral concern does come over me as well. And, and I ask that you would pray for me and bear with my word of exhortation. I know that it hasn't always been easy to hear. Uh, people tell me sometimes afterwards, oh, that was really uncomfortable, but it was good. And I'm grateful that you thought it was good, but, but I know it was also uncomfortable. And so I ask that you would bear with it, not for my sake, but for the sake of him who called all of us to this place. Because these are his words. His words. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And we will sacrifice ourselves for him. That's what our calling is, to sacrifice ourselves for him. We will give things up for him and we'll do it to glorify him. As he confessed himself before Pilate, we will confess him with our lips before the world. As he did good, as he shared what he had, we will do good. We will share what he gives us. As he obeyed, even unto death, let us obey unto life. That is the Christian calling. And the question that you have to ask when you hear all of that is, but if I do these things, and if I make these sacrifices, will that make me happy? Or will it turn out to be like the worst choice I ever made? Will it make you happy? I have no idea. I don't have a clue what will make you happy. But I do know that this will be worship. That your life will be a sacrifice of praise to God who made you and who reclaimed you by His grace. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 